We're in Genesis chapter 7 tonight. Genesis chapter 7. Genesis chapter 7, and I want to start tonight with the top. Whoa, we need to cut the lights on, Flavio. Nobody can see. There we go. Coming up. There we go. Genesis chapter 7, and we're going to start tonight with the top 10 statements that Noah made aboard the ark. Here are the top 10 statements Noah made aboard the ark. Number 10, strange, we haven't seen another boat for weeks. Number 9, if only I had brought along more rhino litter. Number 8, I never want to sleep in a waterbed again. Number 7, Fish for supper again? Number six, does anyone have more Dramamine? Number five, what? You don't have film to photograph the rainbow? <laughs> Number four, honey, please stop saying into each life a little rain must fall. Number three, how can I fish with just two worms? Number two, <laughs> God, are you sure we don't need to keep the termites in a tin can? And number one, as Noah exited the ark, he slapped the back of his neck and he mumbled, I should have killed those lousy mosquitoes while I had a chance. Well, in the first six chapters of the book of Genesis, God goes from good to greed. After his creation, God saw everything that he had made and very good. But by chapter 6, the world has become so wicked that God is grieved that He made man in the first place. And the only way that God could save us was to destroy the earth and to start over. Noah was to build a boat, an ark, then gather his wife, his three sons, their wives, and two of every kind of animal on the earth and board that boat, Noah was obedient. And that's where we pick up here tonight in chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. What a moving scene. Understand this, when it's time to board the ark, God doesn't tell Noah, go onto the ark. Rather, he says, come into the ark. The implication is that God is on board the ark, inviting Noah to come in. God is on the ark waiting for Noah. We call it Noah's ark, but it wasn't. It was God's ark. God is the captain of this vessel. Actually, we call the ark a boat, but in truth, it was a barge. A large barge is what it was. The ark had no onboard navigation. Noah had no way to steer the vessel. It was up to God to guide the ark and to dock it in its proper resting place. And that's a lesson for us. Guys, the next time you feel like your life is out of control, that it's just sort of floating in the storm, that you don't have any control of the situation, that you can't navigate things, that things are beyond your control. The next time you feel like a victim, remember who's on board. God is on board with you. Trust the captain to steer the ship. 
Well, in verse 2, God says to Noah, You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and his female, two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female, also seven each of birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. Now the clean animals will be used by Noah later as sacrifices to God when he exits the ark. And thus he takes seven of the clean, only two of the unclean. And these distinctions, clean and unclean, are actually spelled out later for us, codified in the law of Moses. But apparently they were also known from the times of Noah. God continues in verse 4, For after seven more days I will cause it to rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. Apparently there were seven days between the time that Noah boarded the ark and the time that it started to rain. I don't know what they did in those seven days. Perhaps batten down the hatches. Whatever that means, that's sailor talk. <laughs> batten down the hatches. You ever know what that means? Neither do I, but... Remember, Noah had preached for 120 years, and no one had believed him. Now imagine the ridicule that went on during those seven days. Noah and his family inside the ark, all of the skeptics gathered around him, hurling insults and ridicule at Noah. Alexander McLaren, one of my favorite expositors, he writes this. He says, for 120 years, the wits laughed, and the common sense people wondered. And the patient saint went on hammering and pitching at his ark. But one morning it began to rain. And by degrees, somehow, Noah did not seem quite such a fool. The jests would look different when the water was up to the knees of the jesters. And their sarcasms would stick in their throats as they drowned. So it is always. So it will be in the last great day when people awake too late to the conviction that they are outside the ark of safety. Verse 5 tells us, Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters were on the earth. And so Noah with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives went into the ark because of the waters of the flood, of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds, and of everything that creeps on the earth two by two, they went into the ark to Noah, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. Now remember, the ark measured 450 feet long, by 75 feet wide, by 45 feet high. Its three floors provided Noah 101,250 square feet, or 1,518,750 cubic feet. To illustrate the ark's capacity, imagine that you're stopped at a railroad crossing and you're watching the cars go by. 522 boxcars on this train. Each boxcar is packed with 240 sheep. That's 125,280 sheep. Now, the Rari Study Bible estimates that there are approximately 17,600 species of animals on the earth today. Given some of the animals are a little larger than a sheep, and some of the animals are a little smaller than the sheep, using the sheep as sort of the average-sized animal, 
Thus, two of every unclean and seven of the clean would equal about 40,000 sheep, more or less. That's not a bad estimate. But since the ark could hold 125,280 sheep, only 40,000 sheep, that would take up just 28% of its capacity, leaving Noah plenty of room for supplies and food and shuffleboard. Verse 10, And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Now here's a description of flood mechanics. Verse 11, the windows of heaven were opened. Literally, the sluice gates were unleashed. This was not simple rain. This was gushing water poured out onto the earth. Perhaps the collapse of that vapor canopy, canopy we talked about last time. In addition, the fountains of the deep were broken up. Volcanic explosions released pockets of underground water, subterranean springs and oceans. Water came from above and water came from below. Some scholars believe that God initiated the flood with a comet or with a meteorite that penetrated the vapor canopy surrounding the earth, causing it to explode and to collapse. The cosmic collision also tilted the earth's axis, split the one global landmass into continents, and even caused massive mountains to rise. The flood altered the whole topography and geology of the earth, as we're told in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 6, the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. When Noah and his family exit the ark, they walk out into a whole new ecosystem. And let me suggest that a global flood is a far better explanation for the earth's geology than just evolutionary theories. Evolutionists suggest that the planet's topography and strata were formed by natural processes over long periods of time. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't agree. I've been to the Grand Canyon, and I've seen all of its varied geological formations, and I just can't believe that that Grand Canyon was cut out by a little trickle called the Colorado River. I'm sorry. To say that that Grand Canyon started out as a gully I'm just not that gullible, I'm sorry. <laughs> the Institute for Cre Creation Research has done a, a great amount of research on Mount St. Helens in Washington. And they've documented there how that many of the geological structures and formations that were once thought to take millions of years to develop occurred instantaneously in the aftermath of that volcanic explosion. And think about fossils. The earth is indeed a burial ground. Yet what makes a fossil? Natural processes? Of course not. When a fish falls to the ocean floor, it doesn't turn into a fossil. It gets eaten up by scavengers or it just deteriorates. No, it takes pressure and compaction and instant burial for a fossil to form. Conditions that are present in a flood. Even the placement of the fossils in the earth's stratus are better explained by their ability to survive the flood and the waters. 
the animal's body type, its mobility in the water, its buoyancy, its density, its habitat explain how high the animal could have climbed in the floodwaters before it was overcome and was compacted in the sediment. A much better explanation for what we observe in the earth today is the flood of Noah. Well, verse 13 says, On the very day, the very same day, Noah and Noah's son, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, all cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort. And they went into the ark to Noah two by two of all flesh in which is the breath of life. So those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And notice this. To me, this is a beautiful phrase. And the Lord shut him in. The Lord closed the door on the ark. The Lord sealed it shut. The Lord oversees their safety. Now the flood was on the earth 40 days. And in the scriptures, you'll come to discover that the number 40 is the number of judgment. The waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth, and the ark moved about on the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. Obviously, this was a global flood. Notice, all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. That sounds pretty global, pretty universal to me. You know, ancient history also attests to a worldwide flood. Over 200 cultures around the world have a similar story of Noah and the flood. In fact, 88% of those cultures mention a favored family, and 70% say they survived in a boat. The Bible records for us the actual story, but the remnant, the remembrance of this event pops up all over the globe. Verse 20 tells us the waters prevailed 15 cubits upward and the mountains were covered. That's 15 cubits or 45 feet. The waters ascended above the highest mountain, 45 feet above the highest mountain. It could be that prior to the flood, the earth's surface was fairly level, except for a few high hills, as we're told. The mountain ranges could have been formed by the torrential runoffs and the massive erosion that came in the aftermath of the flood. The receding floodwaters were what really shaped and reshaped the earth's geology and topography. Well, verse 24, And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the Spirit of life, all that was on the dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing, and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. That's those that had the breath of life in their nostrils. That's not the fish. The fish were in the water. People wonder, did the fish go into the ark? There were no aquariums on the ark. The fish survived in the water, but of course many of them would have died in the erosion and in the runoff and in the sediment deposits that came in the flood's aftermath. 
Verse 23. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. Only Noah and those in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Understand, it didn't matter how good of a swimmer you were. If you could do the breaststroke and the backstroke and the butterfly, none of that mattered. Do you realize that every Olympic swimmer died in the flood? Do you realize that? It didn't matter how good of a swimmer you were. Human effort, human ingenuity couldn't save you. The only folks who were saved from the flood were those who trusted in God's provision. Those who came in to the ark. And the same is true for us today. This is why if you depend on your own goodness, your own merit, your own abilities, you'll drown. You'll drown in your sin. Only those who humble themselves and trust in God's promises and enter our ark, Jesus Christ. Only those are the ones that will be saved. Actually, the ark is a fabulous, beautiful picture of our Lord Jesus. Think about this. The ark was a trinity. Remember, it was one boat, but there were three decks. A trinity. God was in the ark. He said, come inside. And God was also in Jesus. Both Noah and Jesus were carpenters. Isn't that interesting? And they both built a foolproof salvation. A judgment-proof salvation. When Noah entered the ark... He left behind his old life and received a new life. And the same occurs for any who put their faith in Jesus Christ. There was only one ark. And there is only one way to God. There is only one Savior. According to Genesis 6 verse 16, the ark had a single door. And guess where that door was? It was in the side of the ark. And it was out of that door that Noah came out to repopulate the earth. And likewise, it is from Jesus' side that the life-giving blood flows to repopulate heaven. And finally, the, the ark landed on Mount Ararat on Nisan the 17th, the 17th day of the second month. Interestingly, the exact day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The exact day. Both events marked a new beginning for mankind. Amazing parallels between Noah's ark in our ark, Jesus Christ. Well, chapter 8 begins, Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained and the waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the waters decreased. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, the 17th day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. The ark drifted for five months until it came to rest on Mount Ararat. Today, the mountain known as Ararat is a 16,254-foot peak in northeast Turkey, near the border between Iran and Armenia. And to me, it's no accident that God put the ark where he did. In fact, I believe it's still in that very same spot on Mount Ararat. God could have set the ark down in a valley. So Noah could have used it for firewood or for shelter. 
But instead, God put it on top of a 16,000 foot peak where it would be buried most of the time under ice and snow. I think in order to preserve it for a last day's witness. In 1840, an earthquake blew off the upper 10% of Mount Ararat. And ever since then, sightings of a large wooden man-made structure on the mountain have been reported. In 1916, a Russian pilot sighted a man-made structure on the mountain. His sighting was confirmed by two parties of soldiers in 1917. In 1943, U.S. pilots spotted this structure. In 1955, a French explorer named Fernand Navarra retrieved a piece of carved timber that was tested and dated back to 4500 B.C. Glacial ice on the mountaintop, the region's short summers, political tensions all make it difficult to access Mount Ararat and sort of thwart the expeditions, but I believe that one day undeniable proof will be presented. The skeptics of the flood, the Bible's detractors, they'll be silenced when at some point we turn up concrete evidence of the existence of Noah's Ark. Verse 5, And the waters decreased continually until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So it came to pass at the end of forty days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. Then he sent out a raven which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. He also sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. You know, a raven is a scavenger, and if it finds a carcass, it'll feed off the flesh and never return. A dove, though, lands only on dry ground. And so the habits of these two birds were Noah's way of checking out how far the waters had receded on the earth. Verse 9 says, But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, and she returned into the ark to him, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. And he waited yet another seven days. And again he sent the dove out from the ark. Then the dove came to him in the evening. And behold, a fleshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. And no one knew that the waters had receded from the earth. So he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, which did not return again to him any more. Noah waits seven days. There are seven-day intervals between the times that he sends out the dove. And you wonder why. Perhaps he was waiting for the Sabbath day each time. And it could be that the sending out of the dove was an expression of his faith, perhaps even a part of his worship. And it came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. After nearly nine months in that ark, Noah walks out on the deck and he surveys a brand new world. Verse 14 tells us, And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. The same God who said, come in, now says, go out. And you know, the same is true with you and I. 
God calls us to come to Christ. He says, come. Whosoever will may come. We come in. But after we grow and mature, we go out. The Lord instructs us to go out and to be fruitful and to spread the good news of Jesus. Now, it's interesting that Noah entered the ark on the 10th day of the second month. He exited the ark one year later on the 27th day of the same month. Noah was in the ark for 377 days, over a year. And here's what's important. 60% of the time was spent sitting in the same place, waiting for the waters to recede. In other words, Noah had to learn patience. Noah had to learn to wait on God, and so do you. So often we want to move, we want to go, but God says wait. We've got to learn to wait on God. The great Puritan pastor, Phillips Brooks, was pacing back and forth in the living room of his home one day when a friend came to visit. And his friend asked Brooks why he was so restless. And Phillips Brooks replied, because I am in a hurry and God is not. Guys, we need to learn to rest in God's promises, to allow Him to bring to pass in His time and in His way the things that He's promised to us. Remember, the word Noah, this is no accident, the word Noah means rest. Verse 17, Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every animal, every creeping thing, every bird and whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar." Noah's first act when he steps off of the ark onto dry ground is to build an altar to God. It's to make a sacrifice. It's to worship God. It was man's sin that had destroyed the world. But the flood didn't destroy sin. Noah's first step off of the ark was to offer a sacrifice for his sin. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma Apparently, God was pleased with his sacrifice. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. Even though God taught humanity a lesson, he knew that in the long run, another global judgment would be inevitable. Every human being, you see, is born with a sin nature. As verse 21 tells us, the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. God knew that judgment, again, another judgment would be necessary. But the next time, and the last judgment, the earth will be judged not with flood, but with fire. We read about that in 2 Peter and in Revelation. Well, in chapter 9, God makes a covenant with Noah suited for this post-flood world. Verse 1. So God blessed Noah and his sons 
and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Prior to the flood, humans were vegetarians. But after the flood, God added meat to our diet. And aren't you glad? God blessed us with Big Macs. And with beef and pork barbecue. Evidently, post-flood people would need an extra source of protein. And so he added meat to our diet. And now that animals become a source of food for man, God instills in the animal kingdom a fear of humans. Verse 2 calls it a fear or a dread. Now he also says the fish of the sea have this fear and dread of man. I think that's everybody but me. I don't know of any fish that fear me. I'm a lousy fisherman. When I come walking up, they say, Oh, great, here comes a new can of worms. But, but, God put a fear and a dread of man in the heart of the animals, the fish, the birds. And you see, this was God's way of sort of evening the score and protecting the animals. Imagine, you remember before the flood, this was why Noah was able to gather the animals together and put them on the ark. There was no fear between animals and man. I mean, the animals would buddy up against man. Man would buddy up against the animals. The men were vegetarians. There was no need for the two to fear each other. But after the flood, now that meat has been added to the diet, now that man becomes a predator to the animals, and the animals in turn become a predator to man, God puts this fear between us, this hostility between us. If he didn't, imagine what this would mean for the animals. It wouldn't be fair. I mean, little Bambi come walking up the path there and, Walks right up to me and I reach in and pull out a few sugar cubes and feed the little deer a few sugar cubes and then blow it away with my shotgun. I mean, it would just be too easy. And so in order to sort of even the score between the humans and the animals, God put a hostility between the two. If he hadn't, it would have been an unfair advantage for the humans hungry for meat. Well, God continues with his covenant in verse 5. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it and from the hand of man. In other words, if a pit bull mauls a young child, the dog should be put down. But that's not all. Capital punishment also applies to man. For he says, from the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed for in the image of God he made man. Since humans are made in God's image, murder is not just a crime against humanity. Murder is an attack on God and therefore deserving of death. The institution of capital punishment was in essence God's establishment of human government. Government is God's arm to defend and to protect human life and to execute capital punishment. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells his followers to turn the other cheek. 
but he's speaking of personal relationships between people. That doesn't change the responsibilities that God gives to government. If a man kills another man, his blood should also be shed. Well, in verse 7, God instructs Noah and his descendants to go out, be fruitful, to multiply, to reproduce. He says, and as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. I recalled this promise this past week as Ivan flooded the streets and turned my backyard into a swimming pool. God didn't rule out isolated floods, but He did promise that a global flood would never happen again. And here are a few more lessons that we learn from Noah. We learn a lot of things from Noah. Here are a few more lessons. Don't miss the boat. Don't forget we're all in the same boat. Plan ahead. It wasn't raining when Noah built the ark. Here's another lesson we learned from Noah. Stay fit. When you're 600 years old, you might just get assigned a really big job. <laughs> Here's another lesson. Don't listen to your critics. Just get on with what has to be done. That's a good lesson. Build your future on high ground. For safety's sake, travel in pairs. Speed isn't always an advantage. The snails were on board with the cheetahs. When you're stressed, float a while. <laughs> How about this one? The ark was built by amateurs. The Titanic was built by professionals. <laughs> Remember that. Here's another lesson we learned. The woodpeckers inside are a greater threat than the storm outside. And then last, no matter the storm, when God is with you, there is a rainbow waiting. And we find that rainbow in verse 12. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I, had made, I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud. And it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in this cloud. And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud. And I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Here God hangs up his bow in the clouds. Of course, a rainbow is an optical phenomenon where droplets of water refract the light and create sort of a prism effect. The water reveals the total colors of the spectrum. And there were probably rainbows before the flood, perhaps in the mist that watered the Garden of Eden. You know, sometimes if you water your plants, you'll see a little rainbow in the in the uh, water coming up and all. So there were probably rainbows. 
But since the flood was the first time that it had actually rained on the earth, no human prior to Noah had ever seen a rainbow hanging in the clouds. This was a new phenomenon. This was a sign from God. It's interesting, the Hebrew word translated rainbow literally means bow and arrow. And when God hung a rainbow in the sky, it was His way of saying that He was hanging up His bow of judgment. The judgment, that war would no longer be made toward man. The flood was over. It would never be repeated. Whenever Noah heard a clap of thunder or a bolt of lightning... He would look up and he would see God's bow in the clouds, pointed up, by the way, not down. It reminded him that God's judgment was over. The rainbow would serve as a reminder to all of humanity that God's agenda from here on out, from here to the end of the age, will be salvation, not condemnation. Verse 17, And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these the whole earth was populated. Guys, verse 18 lists your grandpa. It does. Every one of us comes from one of Noah's my three sons. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Take the population trends over the last century and extrapolate them back 4,500 years, and it's amazing. You end up with a total world population of eight. That's exactly what we would expect. That's how many people came off of the ark. Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives, eight people. It's also interesting that anthropologists group humans in basically three major categories. Caucasian, Negroid, and Oriental. And if you follow the genealogies of Noah's sons in chapter 10, you'll discover that they loosely parallel these three divisions of human beings. Japheth migrated northward into Europe and became the father of the Caucasian nations. Shem's descendants moved eastward. He birthed the Oriental and the Semitic tribes, whereas Ham's family traveled southward, and the African nations ended up being fathered by Ham. The last ten verses of chapter 9 tell us a sad story. Noah was a man of faith and of obedience. But after walking with God for 600 years, one night does he mend. Isn't that amazing? I mean, you can be faithful for 600 years, but you can lose your reputation, put a stain on your record in just one night. And on one night, he gets drunk. He drops his guard. He figures a little wine won't hurt him. But instead of a glass or two, he gets drunk and bad things happen. Noah takes a drink. The drink takes a drink. And the drink takes Noah. Here's the first mention of wine, of alcohol in the Bible, and it leads a person to sin. You might want to take note of that. Noah may have forgotten his weakness, his need for God. Noah probably figured that he could handle a little temptation. After all, he's Noah. This whole boat thing, I, I, I did that, you know. I'm, I'm Noah. He probably got a little cocky. And guys, pride will always set you up for a fall. 
It can happen to any of us. Noah goes from hero to zero in just a matter of minutes. Verse 20 tells us, And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Now at the very least, Ham was guilty of disrespect. I mean, he had jeered and mocked and insulted his father. But there are also scholars who believe that he was guilty of a far more sinister sin, and there were different theories. Notice Noah wakes up and he knows what his son did to him. Not just what he said about him or acted toward him, but he knows what he did to him. And there are some who think that Ham performed some kind of physical act. Some think he molested his father. He performed a homosexual act. There are others who think that Ham castrated Noah. The Jewish Talmud actually suggests that idea. We're told, though, that then Noah said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. It's interesting. Here, Ham's son is cursed, not Ham. And why that is, we're not sure. It's possible that Canaan actually helped participate in this act with his father Ham. It's also possible that Noah knew that Ham's evil influence on his son would ensure his son's future slavery. And thus Ham's curse will be seen in the future of his son. The Canaanites did eventually become a tribe of slaves. You remember when Joshua leads the descendants of Shem, the Hebrews, into the land of Canaan, he subdues its inhabitants. Who are they? The Canaanites the descendants of Ham and his son Canaan, and they become servants to their brethren. One thing, though, is for sure. Any attempt to try to apply the curse of Ham to black Africans and to justify slavery is a terrible misuse of Scripture. And yet there are white racists who take the Scripture and try to bend it and twist it in that direction. It's interesting that some of Ham's descendants did settle in Africa, certainly. But the curse was on Ham's son Canaan, not all of Ham's descendants. Take that in mind. And it's interesting, Canaan didn't even have black skin. I mean, I mean to try to take that and twist it and make it a racist kind of a thing is just a terrible misuse of Scripture. Noah also said in verse 26, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Shem would be the father of Abraham and of the Jews. And may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem. The Gentiles, in other words, will seek refuge in the blessings of Israel. And may Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. And so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Chapter 10. Now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And sons were born to them after the flood. And what comes next in Genesis chapter 10 is what we call 
the table of nations. And it shows the distribution of Noah's descendants as they move out into this post-flood world and begin to repopulate the planet. The sons of Japheth, we're told, were Gomer, or the Germanic peoples, Magog, or Russia, Madai, Havan, or the Greeks, Tubal, Meshach, Meshach is perhaps a reference to Moscow, and Tyrus, or the Italians. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Rephath, and Togomar. The sons of Yavin were Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastal peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. Now the sons of Ham were Cush, or Ethiopia, Mizraim, or Egypt, Put, which was a part of ancient Egypt, which is today Somalia, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, and Zaptakah. And the sons of Rama were Sheba and Dedan, who were the inhabitants of the Arabian Peninsula. Verse 8 is a parenthesis in Ham's genealogy. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Iraq, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. The name Nimrod means rebel, to rebel. And that's exactly what this Nimrod did. After the flood, remember what God did. God hung up his bow. Remember? God hung up his bow. He hung it in the clouds for all to see. God wanted to make peace. But Nimrod became the mighty hunter before the Lord. One interpretation reads, mighty hunter against the Lord. The idea being that Nimrod went out hunting people to draw them away from God and after himself. No doubt Nimrod was also a skilled hunter of animals. And think of the prestige that this would have produced for him in this post-flood world. I mean, humans and animals, again, had gone from being pals to being predators. Noah had spent his time in the ark, cuddled up with the lions and the tigers. But that was not the case once they left the ark. Can you imagine that first night out of the ark, knowing that there, there was now hostility between you and these animals that you had been seeing on the ark? I mean, every rustle in the bushes, every time the limbs in the, in the trees moved, I mean, you were scared to death. You were scared that perhaps you would become dinner for one of these animals. Man's former furry friends could now stalk him for dinner. And a mighty hunter would be an important person. He would be a hero to the people. He would be their protector. He would actually be their savior. And he would be able to make to them very appealing promises. Tradition says that Nimrod was also the first human to domesticate horses and to bring the animal kingdom under man's dominion. He was a very powerful person in this post-flood world. Folks saw Nimrod as a savior. And in chapter 11, he becomes the first antichrist. The first person to ask, to offer the people a salvation, but his salvation is a farce. We'll see 
in chapter 11. Well, verse 11 tells us, From that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ar, Kala, and Resen, between Nineveh and Kala, that is the principal city. Mezraim begot Ludum, Anaimim, Lahabim, Naphtahum, a couple other guys. <laughs> Canaan begat Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, the Jebusite, the Amorite, the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Archite, the Uptite, the Adasite, <laughs> Mosquito Bite. And the Sinite, the Sinites might have been the Chinese, the Arvadite, the Zimmerite, and the Hamathite. Afterward, the families of the Canaanites were dispersed. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, which was on the Lebanese, southern Lebanon coast. As you go down toward Gerar, which was southward as far as Gaza, down in southern Israel. Then you go to Sodom, which was eastward toward the Dead Sea. Gamara, Admam, Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These were the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands and in their nations. Verse 21. And children were born also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, probably short for Hebrews. The brother of Japheth, the elder. The sons of Shem were Elam, Ashur, Afoxad, Lud and Aram, the sons of Aram, were Uz. Does that ring a bell? You remember who was from the land of Uz? You remember? Not Dorothy. That's Oz, not Uz. Job. Job was from the land of Uz. Job was the big buzz of Uz, too. You know. Hull. Gether and Mosh, a fox had begot Selah, and Selah begot Eber. And this is interesting, notice this. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. Today, geologists talk about a former supercontinent. Pangaea, they call it. And they believe that at one time the earth was a connected landmass, one connected landmass that then broke apart into the continents. And if you take a quick look at a globe and you start studying the shape of the continents, it's pretty easy to imagine how all seven continents would have fit together like puzzle pieces into one giant landmass. I believe that one of the aftermaths of the flood was this one landmass broke apart. And divided into the continents, and the continents began to drift apart in all of the runoff and in all of the deluge following the flood. And of course, this is how the kangaroos made it from Ararat to Australia. Over these big land bridges. You know, before the, before the uh, continents began to break apart, they were able to cross these land bridges and reach these distant lands. This is how the American Indians reached the New World. These people and animals were able to travel across these huge land bridges that existed up until the days of Peleg when they began to break apart and the continents began to drift away. Well, Peleg's brother's name was Joktan. And Joktan begat Almoda, Shelef, Hazmavith, Jera, Hadarim, Uzel, 
Dikla, Obel, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir. Ophir was a land known for its gold. Havilah and Jobab, or perhaps Job. All these were the sons of Joktan. And their dwelling places was from Mesha as you go towards Sefer, the mountain of the east. These were the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, according to their nations. These were the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations and their nations. And from these, the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. And there we have the table of nations. Now, what did God tell man to do once he left the ark? To go out and to do what? To be fruitful and to multiply. Guys, spread out. Repopulate this planet. Be fruitful, multiply. But have you learned anything about man yet? He doesn't always follow God's commandments, does he? God says do this, and sometimes he does that. And so God says be fruitful and multiply, but instead they gather together under a ruler, a man by the name of Nimrod. And Nimrod founds the first one-world government. Nimrod is the father of globalism. And we'll study Nimrod next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for these chapters in Genesis and the many, many lessons, Lord, that we've touched on tonight. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to go back and those things that you spoke to our hearts about, the little lessons here and there that pricked our hearts that we thought, wow, that's for me. Help us to go back now and dwell on those things and meditate on those things this evening. Continue to bless us, Lord, as we go through your word. May your word go through us and make us into the people you want us to be. Lord, I pray you'll bless our week this week. Lord, help us to be a messenger. Help us to share your good news with others. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Now, will you guys raise your hand right here? You know who all these, where all these people are sitting over here with their hand raised? They're sitting in the place where we're going to take questions. And so if you have any questions over tonight's study, you come down here and join us down here, and then we'll, we'll answer some questions, or try to. God bless you. Good to see you tonight.